Good, uh, good morning, everyone. If you don't know me, my name's Tom, a.k.a. Huge Tom, which is especially funny. Um, Matt, could you just come up here, please? Just, just come up here. This, this, is, this is Tommy's dad, yeah. so it's, it's especially funny that he calls me Huge Tom. But I'm huge, huge. Are you huge, huge? Huge, huge. Right, so there is, fantastic. Um, I just want to thank you so much, Annie, for putting one day more into my head, <laughs> your comments about Les Mis. But really, that is a very good illustration, uh, Jean Valjean stealing uh, the bishop's silver and then being forgiven. There we go. Okay. Um, so bear that, bear that illustration in mind. Now, they say that the first 30 seconds of any sermon is what makes or breaks a sermon, right? So usually we sit down and come up with some sort of really schnazzy introduction that will grip everybody. Today, I don't have to do that because today we're talking about sex. That's S-E-X, not S-I-X, for those of you that can't understand the accent. Okay, just thought I'd point that out. Okay, so what do I know about sex? Um, very, very little. I am um, single. I am turning 40 this year. Um, I have never had sex. What do I know about sex? Pretty much nothing other than how not to have it right? Um, I'm very skilled at not having sex. Is that good? So John always tells me my timing's out. Okay, but God does know about sex. That's the good news, is God knows a lot about sex. He made it. His idea, he built it for a reason. Actually, having said all of that, today is not really about sex. The sex that we're going to talk about is merely the presentation of a problem. You see, here's the thing. God wants us to have joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God wants you to have joy? The Bible teaches that God wants you to have joy. If you look at the, the book of 1 Thessalonians, it's a book about joy. It's a book, if you think back to the first week, about how we get joy. How we get joy when we have faith and hope and love. Where we have faith in Jesus and what he's done on the cross. When we know that God loves us. When we hope that he'll return and save us. When we have faith, hope, and love, what that leads to is us serving. Serving God, serving each other, doing it at a great cost. And here's the kicker. When we do that, we will have joy. But here's what he's adamant about. That if we want joy, the place that we find it is not in following what we want for our lives, but when we find it, we find it when we follow what He wants for our lives. And here's what today is really about. 
what God wants for us, for each and every one of us, is to become what we already are in Him. Put another way, He's changed us. We are not what we were before we were Christian. God wants us to live as though we've been changed by Him. Have a look at the first part of verse 3, if you've got your Bibles open. It's not going to be on screen, I'm sorry, so I'll read them to you. Verse 3, it is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. The key word here is sanctified. So sanctified, saint, it's the same place we get the word saint. Something that is sanctified is something that is pure and holy. Here's the idea, if you can picture the temple in Jerusalem, In the temple in Jerusalem, there were knives, and there were bowls, and there were candlesticks, and there were plates, and there were all sorts of things. And they were all the same sort of things that you'd have in your house, right? Um, I think, Catherine, could we just change that back to the... That would probably be less distracting, and I'll tell you when I need the other one. Thanks. We're We're having a problem putting the slides that I want to show you on the machine, so I'm using my phone, so my apologies for that. Um, so you'd have all this, this stuff, these plates, these bowls, these knives, these forks, everything that was used in the temple, you would also have at home. What made them different? It wasn't what they looked like. You could go and get something that was made up in exactly the same pattern as the, the cutlery and crockery and the utensils that were used in the temple. What made it different was this. The stuff in the temple was used for God's purposes. This is the idea behind sanctification. Something that is sanctified is used for God's purposes. It's different. We Christians belong to God. We're his. That's where the Jean Valjean bishop metaphor from Les Mis comes in. Jesus has bought us at a price. He died on the cross to forgive our sins. We are no longer our own. We belong to God. We belong to God. And he calls us to be what we already are. His. So if you go and flick through your Bible, there's some versions of the Bible you may not see this, you go and flick through the Bible, what you will see is that Christians are often described as the saints. So there's this letter, the, the writers who are writing the letters that make up most of the New Testament would write to the saints at and then give a town name. Is that true? Yeah. The Bible's idea of saints is that it's every Christian, everybody that has been sanctified, everybody that is holy and belongs to God. If you're a Christian, you belong to God. Now think about this for a second. We are most at peace when we are acting as we actually are when we're not having to put on fronts and faces to people, when we're not having to pretend that we're something that we're not, that is when we're most at peace. 
stands to reason, therefore, that if you want peace and joy as a Christian, don't act like something you're not. If we are Christians, we will find peace and joy in being Christian, in acting like we are. And yet here's the paradox. As much as God has made us his, and we belong to him and are supposed to serve and follow him, he's given us free will as well. We have this capacity to make moral choices. And he always gives us what we ask for when it comes to moral choices. If we say, I am going to follow you, God, he goes, that's wonderful. My will be done in your life. And if we choose to not follow God, we say to him, I want something else to rule my life. He'll say, okay, your will be done. Something else can rule your life. He always gives us that moral choice. We have free will. We know what God wants us to do. And yet, we so often don't do it. Why? I think two reasons. I think the first one is that we're not morally neutral beings. If you don't believe me, just look at a toddler. Don't have to teach a toddler to be disobedient. It just comes naturally. There comes that point where they look at you square in the eye, holding whatever you've told them not to play with, and go, no. You didn't have to teach them how to do that. We're not morally neutral beings. We have this inbuilt, innate capacity to do what we ought not to do. Don't have to be trained to do it. Just happens. Okay, so we're not we're not morally neutral. And then the second thing is we don't come from a value neutral culture either. Nobody does. We're all products of our upbringing. We're all products of our education. We're all products of our societal values. What those two things mean is that sometimes the things that we hold to be neutral, i.e. neither good nor bad, or good or bad, will clash with what God holds to be good for us or bad for us. It's true for us, and it was true for the Thessalonian Christians as well. Perhaps even more true for them. You see, we've had this wonderful gift of 2,000 years odd of Christian culture influencing our, our culture. So we have a lot of laws and a lot of societal norms that reflect what God wants. And yet we're moving into a post-Christian culture now. Are we not? Things aren't quite what they were. We're looking at, at things that we held to be normative and true a generation ago and saying we don't want those things anymore. The Thessalonians, of course, never had that Christian culture um, impacting on them. They had this wonderful, rich Greek culture lasting thousands of years that they could look back on. But they didn't have Christianity influencing their culture. So as, as much as there was that cultural is that cultural clash for us, it was even more so for them. 
6 is a great example of where cultures clash with the Bible quite often. So is love, for that matter. Uh, Here's an interesting thing. People look at love and they quote you verses like like 1 John 4 verse 8 and say, God is love. Actually, they're only quoting the last bit of the verse when they say that. They quote that and they go, I love the Bible. I love what God says because God is love. They uh, chose to read the rest of 1 John. They would see a somewhat different story, I think, as to what love actually means. So people love the Christian idea of love, but then when we start talking about sex, it's a very different story. I hear words like outdated, wrong, not in step with our culture when we start talking about sex. Well, here's the good news. I think it's good news. I don't know. The thing is that people have disagreed with what the Bible has taught since it was written. 2,000 years ago, the Thessalonian Christians were disagreeing with what the Bible said. So we've got these two competing forces. Um, our, our capacity um, to do the wrong thing and the cultural blindness we have. That means that God has to say to us, who are Christians, who love him, who want to serve him, be what you already are. Act like you belong to me. I think this is quite important to realize is we go and look at 1 Thessalonians and see the teaching and assume that they were being rotters and just wanting to disobey God. But if you go and look at verses 1 and 2, what you'll see is that these were probably issues that they were raising. Remember we said last week that, that, that Paul had sent Timothy back to Thessalonica? Yeah? Well, these are probably questions that he brought back. So this week's sex, there are a couple of other things in the back part of the passage that we're, that we're not going to deal with. Uh, next week, um, looking at the end times, what the last days are going to look like. John's going to look at that with you. Those seem to be questions that they were asking. What can we read into that? Well, probably, I think, They wanted to serve God. They wanted to follow God. They wanted to do what God wanted them to do. And yet at the same time, he's expecting some degree of of disagreement. Verse 2. For you know what instructions he gave me by the authority, um, so we gave you, by the authority of the Lord Jesus. Why is he claiming Jesus' authority there? I guess the trump card. Can you argue with Jesus? No. Verse 8. Therefore, anyone who injects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God. The very God who gave you his Holy Spirit. This instruction that he's talking about is, of course, the teaching that he gives on sex. Culturally speaking, the Thessalonians were... Well, they saw sex very, very, very differently to the way God presents sex. 
For one thing, sex and worship were, were completely intertwined in Thessalonica. Uh, the Thessalonian Christians lived in a city and came from a culture that was full of gods. They worshipped Greek gods. They worshipped Roman gods. They, they even worshipped Egyptian gods. We know that Isis was quite heavily worshipped um, in Thessalonica. And many of those gods had sexual activity at the center of their worship. So the three biggest cults, three biggest religions, if you want to put it that way, in Thessalonica were those that worshipped Aphrodite, Aphrodite, Dionysus, and Cabirius. And all three of those, those uh, religions used sex as a part of their worship. So you would go to the temple, and you would either have sex with prostitutes in the temple, or sometimes with fellow worshippers in the temple, but it was an integral part of worshipping those gods. So you add to that this, the Greek view of sex. The Greek view of sex was this, that if a woman was married, she was only allowed to have sex with her husband. If you were a man or you were an unmarried woman, you could have sex with anybody you wanted to, as long as it wasn't a married woman. What did God want these people and us to know about sex? Verse 3. It's God will, God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality. Now, the word, the phrase sexual immorality sounds quite um, amorphous. It sounds like the kind of word that you can make mean anything you want to. After all, we look at morality as a relative thing. But in the Bible, sexual immorality is, is a stock phrase. It's the word porneia, from where we get pornography. And it meant one thing and one thing only, and that was all sex outside of marriage. Very definitive meaning. I'm going to need my diagrams again. If you could put that screen on. Thank you. No, I don't want to. Come on, unlock. There we go. Okay. So if you picture, can you all see that? How do I get rid of this? No, I can't get rid of it. Okay, so um, can you see that? Is there? Ah, there is too. There we go. That's why we have people like Jono. Okay, so if you picture the Christian view of marriage, it might look something like that. You've got the black background. That's the stuff that you're not allowed to do. That would fit in the black background. The white circle, that's the stuff you can do. Quite simple. What's the only thing inside the white circle? Inside marriage, so sex, inside marriage, only place you can have sex. Everything else is outside of that. Okay, what would you think that would look like for you? Actually, rephrase that. What would you think that would look like for your culture? Perhaps like that? That's what it looked like for the Thessalonians. Black background, so it's the same. Things you're not allowed to do. White circles. Not one, but lots of. So there were things that they frowned upon, like if you're female having sex 
uh, and married having sex with anybody but your husband. But by and large, you could pretty much do anything you wanted, including, we have to say, things that we would consider rape, things that we would consider pedophilia today. They were considered acceptable in those days, in that culture. I would think that our Australian culture would look like that as well. There's some things that are outside that we're not allowed to do. We would rightly put pedophilia, rape, things like that on the outside, but there are a whole lot of things that it's okay to do in our culture. They would go on the circles on the inside. So sex outside of marriage, that would be one of the circles. Um, homosexual sex, that would be one of the circles. Many other kinds that all fit in there, not right, not wrong in our culture, just, um, just different. So we know what God's view of sex looks like. It's a question for you. What does your view of sex look like? Like that? That's God's view of sex. Or more like this, perhaps. So you've got the same circle in the center that's white. That's the things that are allowed inside marriage. But then you have a whole lot of varying degrees of gray in the other circles. Perhaps you would put in the circle number two over there, perhaps you would put something like having sex if you're going to get married. Perhaps you'd put that in there. Because you know it's not right, right? But is it really that wrong? Perhaps in the next one you would, you would put something like divorced people who are not remarried having sex. Perhaps in the circle after that you would put dumbass kids because, you know, kids will be kids and just mess up and do stupid things, as long as they don't get pregnant or, you know, anything like that. Put them in the next circle, because it's not quite as bad, is it? And then you put things like homosexuality, pedophilia, all that kind of stuff. The stuff that we as Christians know we shouldn't be doing, we put that on the outside. You see the difference between that and this? The problem with this one is that it's wrong, right? God says the only sex that we're allowed to have is sex inside a marriage. And what, here's what makes it worse. When we go and stick all those degrees on the side, actually we're becoming hypocrites. We're saying things that God says, is, says are not okay. We're saying could be okay, and then we're excluding some other things. We're being hypocrites about it. Now, I'm not naive. As I said earlier, I haven't had sex before. Um, I'm neither proud of that, nor am I embarrassed by that. It just is what it is. But I've spoken to a lot of people about sex and relationships over the years. Side effect of working with teenagers and other such people. Yeah. 
Teenagers do stupid things sometimes. So let me say these three things about the sermon. This is the first one. If you're sitting here hoping nobody will notice how bright red you're going, because you think that I'm talking about you here, um, you're probably not alone. There, There are probably other people that are sitting here thinking the same thing because... Well, it's surprising the number of people that have sex with somebody they're not married to. It's far more common than you think. And I'm not thinking about any of you, so you don't have to worry. I had nobody in mind when I said this. Having said that, number two is it is actually kind of a big deal. If you're tempted to think that it doesn't matter, know that it does matter. But then thirdly, it's not the end of the world. God is the God of second chances. He's the God who puts our sin away from us as far as east is from west. So here's the theory of that. If you can imagine for a second that this is east and this is west over here, I can face west, but then my back's to the east. I can face east, but then my back's to the west. I can never look at east and west at the same time. God chooses not to look at us and our sin at the same time. When he forgives our sin, it is dealt with. It is past. We don't have to dwell on it, and he doesn't dwell on it. There is a warning in this passage in verse 6, if you see it there. I don't think that's aimed at people that look at God and go, you're right, God, I've done the wrong thing, and I want to change. I don't even think it's aimed at people that look at God and go, you're right, God, I did the wrong thing, and I want to change, and then go back and do the same thing again and again and again. I think this is who it's aimed at, people that look at God and go, what do you mean I should only have sex with somebody I'm married to? I think that's who it's talking about, somebody who looks at something that God says, this is right and this is wrong, and says, I disagree with you, I think that's who it's talking about. If that is you, however, if you are looking and listening, looking at this issue today and listening to what I'm saying and going, okay, you don't know what you're talking about. I'm going to carry on doing what I'm doing. Know that you're still welcome here. Nobody is without sin. I may have managed to avoid sex with some, anybody for 40-odd years. Um, but as I'm constantly realizing, there are all sorts of other areas in my life that are not under the control of God. All sorts of other areas in my life where I don't do what God wants me to do. Where actually sometimes I look at God and go, problem, what problem? And then he has to drag me in line and show me what the problem is. So I have no right to judge. Nobody here has any right to judge. But God has spoken on this, and we should all listen. Okay, so here's the question. What's the big deal about sex inside of marriage? Why does God speak about this in particular? Why does God say that it's a wonderful thing to have sex inside of marriage and a terrible idea to have sex outside of marriage? Well, I'm told that sex is fun. I can neither confirm nor deny. Other people perhaps can. 
But it is an amazingly intimate activity. That much I do know. And it's designed to be an amazingly intimate activity. All of which means that there has to be a fair degree of trust um, when you have it. I think that's fair to say? To have sex, there has to be trust? Here is the paradox, though. As intimate as sex is, as much trust as you need to have with a person to have sex with them, sex cannot create intimacy in and of itself. Sex is an intimate thing, but it cannot create intimacy in and of itself. When I talk to people who have sex outside of marriage, as I said, it happens surprisingly often, and ask them the question, why, which I do, because I think it's a helpful question to ask them so that they can think about why they're doing what they're doing. The answer that comes out more often than not is something that in the end ends up with, well, I needed to know that that they loved me. I needed to know that I mattered to them. I needed that intimacy, that, that personal connection. We all want to know that we matter. Here's the thing, though. Sex cannot do that. It will never do that. If you don't already matter to that person, if you are not already intimate with that person, sex is not going to bring that. I think that's why when you look at sex and breakups... In relationships where sex has happened, the breakups are often a lot messier than they are when sex hasn't happened. I think that's because, quite frankly, there's been the search for intimacy, the search for belonging, the search for meaning, and what's happened? The person said, I don't, I don't want to be around you anymore. I don't want to be intimate with you anymore. I don't trust you anymore. They thought they mattered to that person, and they found out they didn't. So take that and contrast it with marriage, right? What is marriage? I think marriage by its design is the most intimate relationship of all. We have lots of intimate relationships. The relationships we have with our children, with our parents, with our brothers and sisters, with our close friends, those to a greater or lesser degree are all intimate relationships. We're able to be honest in those relationships. We are able to say what we actually mean. We're able to trust people in those relationships. But the most intimate relationship of all is marriage. Why is that? Well, here's why I think it is. Remember the vows that you took when you got married. I take you to be mine for better or worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, as long as we both shall live. When you got married to your husband or your wife, what you said to them is, I'm yours forever. It doesn't matter what happens. I'm yours forever. Till I die or you die, I belong to you, you belong to me. Of course, divorce happens, right? And there are all sorts of reasons for that. 
But I, think, I don't think anybody intends when they start off a marriage to get divorced, do they? Their intent is to stay together forever. So in the context of that promise that I will be yours for as long as we both live, well, you can put the barriers down. You can be honest. You can be open. You can be intimate. In that context, sex works. It deepens the intimacy that's already there. But where the promise doesn't exist, sex can't create the intimacy that you, cl- that you long for. And I think the reason it can't create that intimacy is because realistically speaking, tomorrow they might not be there. Though that could be by design as well. Okay, so three points of application as we close off. Here's the first one. Uh, If you had to draw a picture of your view of sex, your personal view, not society's view, not what you think God thinks, but your view of sex, what would it actually look like? Think about that for a few moments. What would your view of sex actually look like? Something like that? Or something like that? That's what God wants your view of sex to look like. So, if you're a Christian, being who you already are, that is what your view of sex should look like. Uh, Number two. What happens if you are sitting here this morning and you are having sex with somebody you're not married to? Well, have a look at verse six. I'll read that to you. That in this matter, that, that sex outside of marriage, no one should wrong or take advantage of his brother or sister. Here's the reality. If you are having sex with somebody outside of marriage, you're taking advantage of them. It applies to men and it applies to women. This is not a guy-only thing. That's not saying you're soiling them. There, there was this horrible um, way of looking at it when I, when I was growing up, when I was a teenager, that if you have sex with somebody, um, you're taking something that isn't yours to take. You're soiling them. They will never be the same again. I don't think that's true. I do think, however, that what you're doing is making a promise to them that you cannot keep. You're promising them intimacy. You're promising them meaning. You're promising them acceptance you have no intention of delivering that, then you're taking advantage of them. If you intend those things for them, you should get married first. Okay, so that's first two. Third one, if you're having sex with somebody that you're not married to, and God shows you that he doesn't want you to be doing that anymore, remember that he is a forgiving God. And he promises that he'll provide all we need. And he does. There's this wonderful picture in the Bible 
of God's relationship, or Jesus' relationship with us, with his church. And this is the picture. As a bride ready for her bridegroom. God pictures our relationship with Jesus as being like a married couple. Why do you think that is? I think that is because that openness, that, uh, that intimacy... The, the desire to really, really matter, all that is fulfilled in Jesus dying on the cross for us. We can be open and honest with him. In Jesus, we see that we really matter to God. And we know that that will last forever and ever and ever. As a single guy, I can tell you that's what I cling to. It's not that I don't want to get married. I do want to get married. But as a single man, that is what I cling to. That everything that I'm missing out in human relationships, actually I can hang on to in my relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord God, you are wonderful and perfect. And we thank you so much for that. Thank you, Father, that you know what is best for us, even when we don't. Thank you, Father, that you are about our joy. Help us to see sex as something that is conformed to your will in our lives. Help us, help us to remember that you want this for our good. And in this matter, as in with every matter, Father, we pray that you would help us to live as what we already are, your children, saved by you, loved by you. We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Hey, we're going to do